Christians need to know how they're supposed to live. And then actually know how they're to live that in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Peter is getting at in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. And as usual, Peter is very pointed, very practical. Under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, he's not trying to step on our toes here, he's just trying to be honest. He tells us what kind of actions flow from a heart that is trusting Jesus and reflecting his character. He tells us how Christians are supposed to live. So if you can, please take your Bibles and stand with me to read God's Word. We're going to read verses 8 through 12 of 1 Peter 3. This is the Word of God. We stand because we want to remind ourselves that this is not our Word, and we live in a world of words where God has given us His Word, and this is utterly different from any other word. This is true and without error and will last forever. 1 Peter 3, beginning at verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we acknowledge that you are who you say you are in your word. And we acknowledge, Lord, that you are the one who blesses, that you are the one who is righteous. And Lord, we pray as we think about how believers are to live, that we would not trust in ourselves, but in you who raises the dead. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so I have a pretty tough and revealing question for all of you who claim to be believers in Christ, professing believers in Christ. If you say you are a Christian, this question is for you. Here's the question. Based on what they see and hear in your life, would non-believers say about you that Christians are loving, kind, patient, self-giving, and forgiving? Or would they say that Christians are hateful and unkind and impatient, self-centered, and unforgiving? Basically, how would an unbeliever finish the sentence, Christians are, dot, 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 as a result of hearing and seeing your life? All too frequently, 
we do not live what we say we believe. And we want consistency. We want to live what we say we believe. But more often than not, we find inconsistency in our witness. And our testimony for the gospel is hindered. Put roadblocks up in the, in the way of people that need to hear the gospel. It's been said that, somewhat of a trite saying, that we are blessed to be a blessing. You may have heard those words before. We're blessed to be a blessing. That's way too generic. It needs to be more specific. What do you mean, blessed by who? And to be a blessing to who? Here is the way you can be more specific. We are blessed in Christ and the gospel to be a blessing for Christ and the gospel. We're called as believers to live a life of blessing. As we respond to the free grace of God in Christ. As always, Peter is so Christ-centered in his words. He is basing his reasoning on what God has done in Christ at the cross. And in verse 9, it tells us very clearly that we are called to be heirs of his blessing. Notice that repeated word, bless, blessing. Called to a life of blessing. Peter's basing his reasoning on the cross. And, and it commits us to a life of blessing. We respond to that free grace of God in Christ. And just like Jesus says in the Beatitudes, you're going to be reflecting the love and humility of Christ as heirs of his kingdom. Especially the love of God shown to enemies. But In this passage today, Peter is giving five characteristics of a life of blessing. A life that brings blessing. And these are not randomly generated virtues. It's not like they pressed a button and let's see which five characteristics pop up today. These are are virtues that work together like fingers on a hand. The key is the grace and and love and mercy of Jesus. Verse 8 begins with the word finally. It's summing an argument up. Peter is saying finally now, summing it all up, all of you. All Christians in the church, not just Christian citizens and employees and wives and husbands who've been addressed in recent weeks. The immediate context that Peter has been, has been speaking of has been about submission. What Peter has been saying to us is based on chapter 2, verse 13. And it says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. It also is based on verse 17 of chapter 2 that says, Honor everyone. So we're talking about submission. The elect exiles that he is writing to, these aliens and strangers on earth, are called to submit to God's ordained order. Christian citizens are called to honor God by obeying God-ordained civil authorities. Christian employees are called to honor their, their invisible big boss by obeying their visible boss Christian wives are called to honor God by submitting to their husbands not focused primarily on outward appearance but inner character, inner beauty and Christian husbands we saw this last week are called to honor God by serving your wife you're called to know and treasure and pray for your wife someone said to me this week 
Men, Christian men, are getting a degree in wifeology. I thought that was a good way of putting it. So study hard on your degree for wifeology. It's a lifelong program with many midterms, many tests. The final exam, TDP, till death do you part. The marriage in this context too, and, and, and in the New Testament, is such a especially unique and, and potent picture of Christ and His church. The context now is going to shift from submission to suffering. Peter has been talking about suffering a little bit in the context of submission, but it's been about submission, and now he's going to move to the idea of suffering. And he's going to, he is going to keep going on this all the way till the beginning of chapter 5, when we talk about elders in the church. But first, what Peter does is give these five characteristics of a life of blessing which includes submission and suffering. If you want to have a life of blessing, then submitting to God by submitting to those God has put over you and suffering for righteousness' sake will be part of your life. Let's look at the first characteristic. It's in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. So that's the first characteristic, unity of mind. It means to share the same thoughts and attitudes. Unity of mind. It means to be harmonious, to agree together. Many of us go through our daily life and we're not agreeing with a lot of people. We're not in harmony with people and agreeing with them. But here we're being told that how a Christian is to live is to live in harmony with one another, with brothers and sisters in Christ. It's it's the idea of being like-minded. Now, the Greeks and the Romans spoke of the need for harmony in the home and in the state. But Peter is giving it added depth. The idea is that you are prayerfully anticipating the coming of Jesus and that that leads you to serve God in fervent love. That your mind is prepared for action by fixing your hope on Christ, as chapter 1, verse 13 says. Now think about Peter. So many examples from Peter's life of doing the wrong thing. You could look at Peter and say, exhibit A of how Christians are not supposed to live. And I could just see the concerned Christian coalition of Cappadocia coming to Peter and saying, how dare you say these things to us because you haven't been having the greatest track record of doing this. But I believe that Peter was changed. We know that Jesus recommissioned him for service and promised him suffering. But remember when Peter told Jesus not to go to the cross? He said, never, Lord, this is not going to happen to you. Jesus, don't go to the cross. And, and, and Jesus rebukes Peter. And he says to him, get behind me, Satan, because you're not putting your mind on God's interest, but on the things of man. We find unity of mind in the gospel of the cross of Christ. We find this this unity of mind in what Jesus did at the cross. In paying our debt, in taking our place, in dying for sin. And this unity of mind is to show harmony of attitude as well as your understanding. 
It relates to the humility and the love that Peter lists among these characteristics. Paul told the Philippians, he said, be of the same mind and have the same love because it's yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to tell us how Jesus humbled himself to the cross. So being of the same mind, you're unified in your understanding of the gospel, of the truth. And, and it goes further. Because of that, you have this willingness. This willingness to submit yourself to others for Christ's sake. The first thing we need to know about how a Christian ought to live is that they ought to have unity of mind with fellow believers. The second characteristic is sympathy. You may have received a sympathy card. You went through a tough time or you lost a loved one. Someone's going to send you a sympathy card. They might even send you, bring you meals. And some that are high on the sympathy charts would, would come up and give you a hug and others would, would sit with you maybe day after day, hour after hour and listen to your heart. Sympathy means not just to suffer together but to rejoice together. To suffer and rejoice together. Jesus is described in Hebrews 4.15 as our sympathetic high priest who sympathizes with our weakness. Husbands are called in chapter 3 verse 7 to sympathetically understand their wives. And sympathy is this willingness as Romans 12.15 says to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Paul gives us a great picture of this when he speaks of of sympathy among body parts. It's very interesting in this passage. There's a lot of body parts in this passage. Did you notice when I was reading it? You've got heart. I guess mind is not a body part, but you've got your your tongue, your lips. You've got turning away, so that would be your back. You've got your face because you're seeking something. You've got the eyes of the Lord, the ears of the Lord, the face of the Lord. There's a lot of body parts here. But the kind of body parts Paul was talking about to the Corinthians was not about your, you know, your, your lungs and your, your heart, but about members in the body of Christ. And he's likening that to the members of a body. And he said, when one member suffers, all the members suffer. If you have a backache today, your whole body aches. You have you know, pain in your head, It affects everything. In the body of Christ, we're not only to seek one another's good, we are to enter into each other's needs and burdens. We're not so good about that sometimes because we're so concerned about our needs and burdens. Galatians 6 says, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. What does that mean? Well, we're also told in the same chapter, each one shall bear their own load. Your own load is your normal cargo. But when you get overloaded, when you're burdened, when your back is breaking proverbially under the weight of of what you're going through, others are to come alongside and, and bear you up. They're to hold you up. Be sympathetic 
It literally means to suffer together in an understanding way. I'm sure that as Peter was being led by the Spirit to write these words down, every word of Scripture is breathed out by God, and God is directing Peter what to write. I'm sure he remembered the time he didn't sympathize. I'm sure he remembered the time when he refused to suffer with Christ who came to suffer for him. When you sympathize, you enter into others' pain and you, you help them through it. A lot of human interaction that goes on is motivated by a desire to manipulate people for our selfish advantage. But the heart of sympathy is sharing and concern and support. You bond together when you suffer. We know this in so many parts of life. You, you're in school together with classmates and you, you're maybe suffering through a tough course. You bond together. In sports, you're on a team and you're, you're going through these battles and you, you bond. How about comrades in arms in war? You form a lifelong bond with people when you suffer with them and when you rejoice with them. Christians are supposed to live with unity of mind and with sympathy. And third, we're supposed to live with brotherly love. Brotherly love. To love your fellow believers. It's the word Philadelphia. It's the second time we've seen it in this, in this letter. I, I can't forget, when I was a kid, my parents gave me a subscription to Sports Illustrated magazine. And one time, the magazine came, and the front cover uh, was about the Philadelphia Flyers hockey team. And Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love, right? Because Philadelphia means brotherly love. But the, the caption, the, the headline on this magazine was, City of Brotherly Slug. Because they were the, the ruffians of the NHL. They were, you know, beating people up. And I guess that's what you do in hockey, right? And you just, you get into fights on the ice. But they were like the biggest perpetrators of, of violence against other teams. So, city of brotherly slug. Now, I also heard after first hour that Philadelphians also boo Santa. Who does that? The city of brotherly love? so love your brother it relates to relating together in love not just being comrades in arms but the knowledge that you've been given new life in Christ you've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit born again to a living hope so you're children of your heavenly father and therefore with your fellow believers you are brothers and sisters in Christ that's the basis why we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. We are loved by God. We are beloved of God. And so therefore we must love our fellow believers. Peter restates the idea of family love in the Christian community. In, in chapter 1, verse 22, he starts by saying, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Philadelphia, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable 
through the living and abiding word of God. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers because he became flesh and blood in our place to die for our sins. God Almighty did that for us. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. How's a Christian supposed to live with brotherly love? Love fellow believers. A fourth characteristic, still in verse 8 here, is a tender heart. A tender heart. Don't you love being around tender-hearted people? Tender-hearted people are wonderful to be around. They, they're because they're so tender-hearted. They're so kind. They're so understanding. They're not harsh. Tender-hearted. It means to have good emotions, good care for one another. To be kind-hearted. Tender. The root comes from your physical interior organs. So right inside of you right now, your heart is beating. You've got probably kidneys. You might still have your gallbladder. I'm kind of pointing to places I really don't know. But just inside, in here, in your guts, you have these, these inner organs. And the Greeks connected your inner organs with courage. That's why we say, he's got guts. She's got guts. But in the Bible, it's different. In the Bible, your inner organs have to do with something different. It has to do with mercy. It has to do with compassion. The idea of a tender heart means that you are you're compassionate. It literally means you've got good heart, liver, lungs, kidneys... Good guts in the merciful, compassionate way of speaking. You have, literally, it's good emotions. You feel together. You're not overly sensitive in your heart that you're always easily wounded and easily take offense, but you have this tender heart towards others and you're sensitive to their needs. In the Gospels, you see, you see Jesus' compassion for people. It's just, it's just dripping from the pages. You got the prodigal, the prodigal son, and you see the father's compassion. And you've got the good Samaritan, which is telling us that, that as Christ's disciples, we're to show that same compassion. Instead of being indifferent to the needs of others and what they're going through, we're to go out of our way to help them. Not like that unconcerned priest or the, the too busy Levite who should have loved their neighbor, but more like that despised Samaritan who had compassion on this critically injured man. No one would expect a Samaritan to help a wounded Jew on his own dime, no less. He shows this merciful love. It, it's one that cannot be forced or coerced. He made himself a neighbor in tender-hearted compassion. We have this, this free, unmerited grace of God in Christ. Jesus bore our sins. He suffered in our place. He, he died, the righteous for the unrighteous. Peter reminds us of this in, in chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 
And God is not saying when he says that you need to have a tender heart that, that you need to earn his favor by being tender hearted. But it, it's this, it's this, this thought. Because of his good favor shown to you in Christ, freely by his grace, as people who are heirs of his blessings forever, of eternal life, then you are to pattern your life after God's love shown to you in Christ. Motivated by the love that God poured out immensely in your hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive one another. Just as in Christ God forgave you. Tender heart. And the fifth characteristic is a humble mind. A humble mind. The idea that your attitudes and your ideas and your mental outlook is humble. We like to think of that like this. Well, I'm just going to make myself feel really bad about myself and kind of stew in that for a while, and then I'm going to present myself out in public as a humble person. I feel humble, therefore I must be. Some people say I'm the most humble person I know. But to be humble in spirit, it means that you're low-lying You're lowly in spirit. You know, the Greeks used this word as a put-down, as a derogatory, negative thing. If they were to speak of you in that day as humble, they would say, um, you're low-minded. That you are, are, should be cut down. It's weak. But not in the Bible. I I love the way that, that God transforms things that man twists. The first idea of humility is submission to God. Submission to God. You think about Moses, Numbers 12, 3. He is listed as the most humble man on earth at that time. What does that mean? It means that he thought of himself the way he should. He's not God. God is God, and and he knew he wasn't. And God was able to use him in great ways because he was a humble man. Think about what Jesus said in Matthew 11, starting at verse 25. Jesus made a declaration. Whenever Jesus makes a declaration, you want to listen up. And here's what he says. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And then He says these words that we know very well. We know these words. Come to me. It's an invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me And here's what Jesus says about himself. I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. Humility is an attitude of your mind where you have a very high opinion of God's goodness. You have the highest possible opinion of God's goodness and a low one of your own. 
And you don't walk around saying bad things about yourself all the time and just say, woe is me because I'm so bad. You basically say, God is so good. You realize your sinfulness. You look in the Beatitudes and Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. This is about heirs of the kingdom. This is about someone who mourns over their sinfulness. Broken over their sinfulness. That's why I, I, I don't think people who are, not, who, are bro- who are not broken over their sin really know the grace of God. If you're not broken over your sin, you don't realize what Jesus did. You realize your sinfulness. Your need to depend on God's unchanging biblical truth and what it tells you about His ability to meet your deepest needs. That's a humble mind. Versus the proud mind, like the Pharisee in Luke 18, that, that trusted in himself that he was righteous. Proverbs 29, 23 says, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. I took a picture yesterday of some rocky ground. I was struck by it. I was at my, my son's college cross-country meet, and the ground was brittle everywhere. And so I just took a picture of this pathway that they were running on, it's just rocks and hard ground. And if you think about that, it reminded me of the parable of the soils and how the word of God doesn't sink into the, the hard ground. But the thing about the, the rocky soil is that it's hard and it's brittle and it's tough to penetrate, but it's thirsty at the same time, very needy. And you think about whether our hearts are tender and, and humble or whether they're brittle and, and tough to penetrate. God wants us to have a tender heart and a humble mind so that we would receive his word. We would believe the gospel truth. We would not walk in arrogance, but follow Jesus and love our brethren and all people. This is how Christians are to live. And why? Why are they to live like this? Why are Christians to live like this? Going through this passage, continuing on in in verse 9, Peter tells us, First reason why you should live like this is because it is effective. It works. God uses a righteous life for gospel purposes. Verse 9 says, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. By the way, reviling, that's the idea of insulting. It's verbally abusive words towards other people. And what this shows is the counterintuitive nature of the life of Christ in us. Our knee-jerk reaction often is just to lash out. The paradox of God's love is... Hate and vengeance cannot conquer love. There's no end to the love of God in Christ. So when a Christian is cursed, we are to bless. No vindictive retaliation. No payback from us. You want to know how you get even? You all want to know, so I'll tell you how you get even. Biblical. Okay, you'll be in the clear on this. Is when you love and bless rather than hate and curse. You love from the depths of your heart and you bless someone for their good and you you get even in, in the biblical sense. It's the example of Jesus in, in chapter 2, verse, verse uh, 23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See, when you trust God's justice, when you know the justice of God, you are free from revenge. You are free for blessing when you know God's goodness. You, pay, you repay evil with good inside and outside the church. That's what Christians are called to do. 
Verse 9 says, on the contrary. There's this big contrast. You're to bless. That means to speak well of, to give something to someone to their benefit. But it doesn't necessarily mean letting disrespectful or disobedient or contrary people have their own way and be the proverbial doormat. Doesn't mean fighting for your rights either. But think about it. If it just means to let disrespectful and disobedient people have their own way, you'd never discipline your kids. Because there are times when kids are disobedient and disrespectful. Kids are awesome, but they learn quickly from us. They're little sinners. We're big sinners. You're to speak the truth in love. Sometimes the best thing you can do to bless is to say a word of rebuke or correction or discipline. It takes firmness and love. It's not false peace at all costs. It's letting the truth prevail. Romans 12 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Never take your own revenge, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And we know from Romans 2 and verse 4 that God's kindness leads to repentance kindness of god is meant to lead to repentance and also when you bless someone and they're cursing you you don't give them god's favor automatically like whoa now they're going to get saved because here it says the face of the lord is against those who do evil verse verse 12 god's opposed to them so your blessing to the one who opposes the gospel looks more like praying for their salvation and their good We aren't just wishing them well, like, you know, be warmed and be filled. That's not the blessing that God has in mind here. Think about Stephen. Go back to the book of Acts and think about Stephen. Here he is dying after being stoned by evil people who are opposed to the gospel message. And what does he say? What does he pray? He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. There that day, while Stephen was dying, was a man, a young man named Saul. Stephen probably had no idea that he was praying for him as well. No way he could know what God was going to do in Saul's life. The Lord who stood at the right hand of God answered that prayer. Whose good, whose salvation are you praying for today? What person who is oppressing you or opposing you or opposing the gospel message as you share it, are you praying for their good and their salvation? It works to live like God says you should live. In the power of the Spirit, doing what He says to do. It's effective. God uses a righteous life for gospel purposes. There's another reason. It's in verse 9 as well. It's a simple one. It's your calling in Christ. God expects and enables a Christ-like life. It says, verse 9, For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. You would inherit the blessing. Because you've been called in Christ to inherit this blessing, because of what Jesus did for you, you are to live for Him. 2 Corinthians 5.15 He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. And then Peter turns to Psalm 34. 
Peter's favorite psalm. He's already quoted Psalm 34. Now he quotes some more verses from Psalm 34 to su- support this truth. Verse 10, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He is not advocating a works righteousness. You can't earn God's blessing by guarding your tongue. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. You have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God has provided your inheritance in Christ, if you are in Christ. He is keeping you for his inheritance, and he is keeping you in the faith, and leading you in his righteous ways. You are to live in the power of the Spirit, doing exactly what God says you are to do. And there is no contradiction in you making really wise choices and trusting the Spirit. James says faith without works is dead. You can't separate the two. The word in verse 10 that's key is the word keep. It means to stop, to cease, to hinder your tongue and your lips from evil and deceit. And then turn away from, in strenuous effort, it's not easy, turn away from, from what? Evil. Verse 11, turn away from evil and do good. Turn your back on evil and let your face seek peace and pursue it. Chase it down, track it down, hunt it down, desire it, aspire to it. We all stumble in many ways, James says, but if we do not stumble in what we say, we're mature. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. Only such a word is as good for building up according to the need of the moment. That it would give grace. Psalm 141 says, Set a guard over my lips, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my mouth. Jesus says the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Whatever fills your heart, you're going to say, and then you're going to do. And we want to say what's right. Believers want to say what's right, but sometimes we have a lot of trouble controlling ourselves. And self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart. Christians want to serve God with all their heart. They're called to do it. Tuesday of this week is Veterans Day. It was started back in in America in 1918. It it landed on November 11th back in 1926. Been there ever since. And what do we do on that day? We remember those who served in the military. Those who still live. And we remember them. But it should remind us of Christ's call for believers to sacrificially serve Him with all our being. To deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus. Because you serve in his name for his sake so that the gospel would be on display. It's whether you volunteer here at Grace, whether you serve your family, whether you servant lead at work, whether you meet needs in your community, you love one another in practical ways and you demonstrate your faith. And God makes you more Christ-like and glorifies himself. Because the Son of Man came not to serve, excuse me, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There are many opportunities for you to be a blessing because of the blessing you have in Christ. That's what it's based on. We look at verse 12 and you see one more reason why you should live like Christians are supposed to live. It says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil... Then you go back to verse 10 that says, whoever desires to love life and see good days. 
The reason you want to do this is because it is rewarded. God blesses such a life lived for Christ. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. Those who are, who are standing in the righteousness of Christ, not trusting their own, God's listening to those prayers. The face of God is against those who do evil. The blessing of God is eternal life. You inherit eternal life if you're in Christ, but you are also blessed in this life. We don't talk about that very much in the Christian community. He sa- in verse 10, it says, good days. You want to see good days. So you have a future heavenly reward, but here and, and now you have blessings in Christ. There are many examples in 1 Peter. Just a few. Chapter 1, verse 8. You love Christ, you'll have inexpressible joy. Verse 9. You continue in the faith, you'll have more blessings of the salvation you're going to be enjoying forever. Verse 17. You live a holy life fearing God, and you will avoid God's fatherly discipline. And it goes on all the way through the book. Blessing does not mean no pain or no trouble. It doesn't mean you'll be able to avoid pain. We love to avoid pain. Blessing doesn't mean worldly success. Doesn't mean that everything is going to turn to gold that you touch, that you'll have smooth sailing all the time, and you'll get everything you want. Sometimes blessing means deep disappointment and discouragement and even doubt, which proves the existence of faith. In the midst of it, God will strengthen your faith. God is giving you an opportunity to grow through his sanctifying fire of testing. Because blessing doesn't mean an easy life. We want to hit the easy button. But this could mean a harder life. We want the path of least resistance. When often it's the path of most resistance that God gives you as a path of blessing. It's like the difference between taking the stairs or the elevator. You take the elevator, you'll get there quicker. You won't sweat. You take the stairs, it will be hard and you'll sweat. But you're going to grow more from taking the stairs and be healthier for taking the stairs. See, a lot of times for people, a good day is, you, you, can name, you can write down what's a good day for you. And it's going to be very self-centered and it's going to be all about how everything will work out your way. But let me give you a good day in the book of Acts. Paul and Silas in a Greek prison with bloody bodies and their feet in the stocks and they're singing songs of praise to God around midnight. Who knows, maybe they're singing Psalm 34. Psalm 34. You know, Silas is Peter's fellow worker in the gospel. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 12 of this letter, he's the one that's going to be bringing the letter to the churches. They would remember the words of Jesus who said, you want to save your life? Lose it. Lose your life for me in the gospel, you'll save it. If we had more time, I'm just going to encourage you to do this. Take a closer look today at Psalm 34. Because I think I know why it's Peter's favorite psalm. You read that with what Peter did in mind. And I'm telling you what, it's like, wow, the mercy and grace of God. And again, I can just see the the Christian coalition of concerned citizens of Cappadocia taking issue with Peter and saying, you know, who are you to talk? And he must have clung to Psalm 34 even when his heart condemned him or others did. When I, I'll give you a question. Just write it down. Does my heart resonate with Psalm 34? You've got to test this out and read it later. Does my heart resonate with Psalm 34? 
You know, we can only seek peace and pursue it because there's mercy with Jesus. Peter, Peter had the mercy of God in his life. And we will bless others as we've been blessed in Christ as we follow these words of Peter.